This is a legacy episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast, originally released as part of the Lesbian Talk Show podcast group. Some references may be obsolete. The show looks at lesbian-relevant themes in history and literature, has interviews and discussions about current historical fiction with queer female characters, including fantastic versions of the past, and presents new original historical fiction for your enjoyment. This month, the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast is delighted to interview author Heather Rose Jones. And I'm turning the tables a little bit this month and having my good friend Darlene Vendania interview me on my own show. Welcome, Darlene. Hello, and welcome to me. Thanks, Heather. <laughs> my, it's my great pleasure to interview you on your own show about your wonderful books. This has to be, you know, I was just saying before we went live that we have to treat this as kind of like a silly game because otherwise the notion of uh, interviewing myself on my own show just gets a little bit too silly. But when my last book came out, I had just barely started the podcast. It had only had, I think, two episodes, and I was only doing the essays. Mm. So there wasn't a context for saying, hey, I've got this great podcast that everybody is listening to, because they weren't yet. And so I figured, what, what, why not? Sure. Have you interviewed other authors? So yeah. it makes perfect sense that you, I mean, you've got a book coming out, a fabulous book coming out, and I think it's great that we talk about it so that people who haven't read your books know that they should. Let me first say that I read a lot of all kinds of fiction and some, mostly fiction, some memoir, and I have stacks and stacks and stacks of books waiting to be read by authors, many authors that I like very, very much. But there are a handful of authors whose books I devour as soon as they are released. I don't put them on a to-read shelf. I put them on the, they are in my hands, I am reading them immediately. <laughs> and Heather is one of that hand, those handfuls of authors that, as soon as the book comes out, heck, before the book comes out, I'm hounding and making dull eyes and saying, please, pretty please, could I have it to read early? <laughs> well, thank you. So, that was one. And so, we're going to talk about all your books, or do you want to focus on I think, well, mostly we want to talk about Flood Tide. Flood Tide, okay. Flood Tide takes place in this beautiful country that you have created. It's a fictional country, but it's in the real world. Mm -hmm. My first question to you is, why did you do that? Why did you create an imaginary country? There are a lot of different reasons for doing that, and some of them are utterly practical. If if you make it up, you can't get it wrong. Sure. And that's not entirely true because if you're setting things in actual history, even if it's an invented place, there's lots of things you can get wrong. And for mm -hmm. that matter, you can invent implausible countries simply by putting things together that just don't work. Mm -hmm. But the biggest reason why I made the Alpania series in an inventing country is because I needed to do certain things with the social structure. Mm. And in the first book, in Daughter of Mystery, I specifically needed to do certain things with the legal structure around inheritance and around the ways that, well, the way that debt worked. There, there's an element around the payment of debts and the inheritance of debts in the first book that had to be set up very specifically. 
and it didn't match any existing legal system. It was sort of riffed off of various mm -hmm. systems. But yet it made sense. I mean, I appreciate that it wasn't how things work, but I understood the way that it worked in that country, and it made sense. I didn't like it particularly, <laughs> <laughs> for, for all the reasons you can guess, but it made sense. And, and I wasn't completely inventing anything implausible. Mm -hmm. Things like you know, the ability of a bastard child to inherit, or the ability for you know, the holder of a noble title to choose one of several possible heirs for the title. Those are all based on actual historic phenomena. Mm -hmm. I just put them together in a particular way that I, that I needed for my plot to work. Mm -hmm. So that was the, the first reason, was to set up the things that the plot needed. And it's a very practical reason. Another reason was really what I said before, that if, if it's invented country, you don't have to get the details exactly precise. You don't have to worry about somebody writing in and saying, but in 1827, that street hadn't been built yet. You know, and, and of course, you get that from readers, whether the readers are correct or not. Yeah. But it, you know, it gives you a certain amount of you know, relaxation space. Yeah. So with regards to the country being imaginary, world, world building, your world building, I, even though it's just a country, I consider it world building. You well, know, yeah. your stat, the, the people's status, the scenery, the language. Your background is in linguistics to some degree, is that correct? It, How did that play? One of my backgrounds. Uh -huh. I, I did my PhD in linguistics, right. uh, and language has always been a big love of mine. I, I tell people I invented my first language when I was 10 years old, which is also the year that I fell in love with European history. That was the year my family lived in Prague. Ah. And uh, a lot of things came together to shake my 10-year-old brain out of its existing Californian ruts, mm -hmm. and life has not been the same since. I, I had a lifelong love of European history and old buildings and the ways that cities are laid out and the way that thousands of years of civic history just builds uh, builds layers. But the language also, I mean, I, I had grown up in an English-speaking family since as far back as anybody can figure out. I was exposed to Spanish because I lived in Southern California. But I hadn't really had the experience of deeply encountering other languages until that year when I lived in Prague. And although I did not learn much language because I was incredibly shy and paralyzingly afraid of talking to strangers, but just the concept of living within another language, of mm -hmm. seeing it all around you, it, it got my brain thinking about equivalent and you know, different and equivalent ways of saying things, different uh -huh. ways of thinking around language. And that really, in the long run, both the history and the language aspects are what led me to do the PhD. Uh -huh. It was on, my, my PhD was on the semantics of medieval Welsh prepositions, wow. which, which, you know, got me the high paying job in biotech pharmaceuticals that I have today. <laughs> and so another stream going into this is my love of inventing languages. I said I invented my first language when I was 10. 
But when I was in college, I started using language invention as a plotting tool for fiction. So I would sort of do automatic writing and write out a poem in a language that didn't exist. And then I would do linguistic analysis, figure out what the poem was saying, what it meant, and then work backwards and imagine what the society was that would have created that meaning in that poem. Wow. And then start putting people together from that society and saying, you know, what stories would they have? Wow. None of those, uh, no, actually one, the, the Skin Singer stories in the uh, Sword and Sorceress mm -hmm. anthology series came out of that type of world building where I started out with the language and then sort of worked backwards to the stories. That's really interesting. You started with the language and worked backwards to the world building. Well, sort of like yeah. Tolkien, if I may drop a name. <laughs> yeah, 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 I could see that. Okay, okay. It's interesting you say that you lived in Prague because... I've never been there, but seeing pictures of, of Prague, and I have to say that when I pictured Alpinia, I think that there would be some similarities to what I imagined Prague was like. Would well, you say that you carried that through? or I would say that one of the biggest influences is the image of the capital city with the river flowing through it, right, and, okay. and Prague has the, the, uh, the Voltava, the Moldau. Right. And you know, like Paris has the Seine and like London has the Thames. And so it's not unique to Prague, but mm -hmm. that concept of the way that a, you know, an ageless city builds up around a river that is also a road, mm -hmm. that certainly helped shape it. In theory, Alpena is far more French influenced in many ways, mm -hmm. but Certainly the, the cities that I have lived in in Europe, mm -hmm. uh, which would be Prague and Munich, those are things that, that sink into your bones. And you know when I'm trying to visualize things, uh, they undoubtedly had an influence mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, in, in flood tide, river certainly is a road. And a character of its and own. A character, and a character of its own, absolutely. I really, um, I really enjoyed that, and I really enjoyed the attention to Liv. She was great. She was a great character. <laughs> Your books all have queer characters. Yeah, my response is, duh. <laughs> right, yeah, right, exactly. And I'm not sure if they're categorized as romance, but there are romances in them. I mean, they are not the standard girl meets girl. They have a conflict, they get together, they have another conflict, they break up, they get back together. There's not, there's not well, there is that a little bit, I suppose, but it's all very subtle which personally I appreciate. Why did you not go more in depth with romances, with the romance aspect of the characters? I try. Uh-huh. So, the, I guess what I mean. Well, what I'm saying is, mm -hmm. I have a hard time having simple stories. Mm -hmm. And so even though it started out where, in Daughter Mystery, the romance between Margaret and Barbara, was the core of the image that inspired that story. Mm -hmm. It was supposed to be, you know, the... Well, to some extent, the, the original inspiration was what ended up being the novel that Julian wrote, which is, you know, the dashing swords and rescues and kidnappings and whatnot. Right, 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 um, right. I, I used it up in that way. That's great. Uh, but I can't say this without it sounding slightly offensive to romance lovers, but just plain romance as a plot is not enough for me. Right. I need something more layered, more complicated. And so it just naturally evolved mm -hmm. that, well, it, it's, not, it's not enough for me to just put these two characters together, 
give them some conflict, give them a reason to stay apart, and then get them together in right. the end. Everything else just built up because it just came oozing out of the cracks. And every time I have tried to plot something that is a straightforward romance where, where the romance itself is central, it keeps accumulating other subplots. Mm -hmm. I haven't written any of those other ones yet, but, mm -hmm. but I've, I've got notebooks, I've got outlines, I've got timelines. And I keep trying to write something that is plain and simple romance, mm -hmm. and it never works. Well, I'll tell you, I don't mean to minimize the romance of the stories because there absolutely is romance. But it's so... The story itself, if, if you took the romance element out of these stories, they would still be fantastic stories because of all the other characters and everything else going on. To me, the romance part of it was like icing on the cake. But I will say that if I took the romance out of those stories, they would not be the stories I wanted to write. Fair because enough. I did want to write stories about women falling in love with each yeah, other. Yeah. But it's true, you know, the question of are these books romances, I, I just, I, I'm in the process of writing an Alpenia Frequently Asked Questions series. Yeah. And that was the first one, mm -hmm. was are the Alpenia books romances? Mm -hmm. And the answer is it is complicated and it depends. Yes. So well, my, I would say, yeah, they my, are. My conclusion is that Daughter of Mystery has a strong romance. The Mystic Marriage has a strong romance. Mother of Souls, you really can't count as capital R romance because of the ending. Mm -hmm. And Flood Tide, it's like, please don't anybody go into this book thinking it is a romance. Right. It's not. No. Well, and Flood Tide, the, the other thing that is different about Flood Tide is that it's first-person narrative. Yes. Which... I, it was funny, I started reading it and I was like, wait a minute, are the other, what? And I went back and I was like, no, they aren't. Well, this is, so that made me go, oh, well, this is cool. And it was great. I loved her point of view. And although, yeah, in Flood Tide, there isn't specifically a romance, boy, that poor little darling kind of wants there to be in a few situations. Mm -hmm. And, and. I would say the, that of all my characters, Roz is the one who is most evidently an erotic creature, let's say it that yeah. way. Yeah, for sure. Um, that it, she wears it on her sleeve and it, it makes her make bad decisions. Right. She's, she's a very engaging character and I really, I really enjoy her. And she's very down to earth and she's, she struggles with all the things that any young woman who's discovering her sexuality does. Mm -hmm. and, and to that extent, it's a little bit of a coming out story, although at the very beginning she's out, she's outed which yeah. is the whole start of her, her situation. But she's a very well-drawn character, and how she learns about other relationships around her, certainly how she learns about Tavit mm -hmm. and their situation, which, by the way, Tavit was fantastically drawn, and how everyone around them deals with them is, is terrific in both books, in Mother of Souls and in... Mm -hmm. Flood tide. I really appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, I, I actually, uh, Tavit has uh, he, him pronouns. Okay. So Tavit very right, solidly right, right. identifies as male. Uh huh. And the people around him understand that to varying degrees. Right. But that is, that is meant to be clear. Right. I really liked the scene where Tavit kind of says to Roz, that's not really your story to tell. Do you mm -hmm. know? Which it really, that really spoke to me. It's like, yeah, it's, it's not up to you to be 
deciding whether to tell somebody something like that mm-hmm. about someone else, you know. Yeah, and I will say that Roz and Tabit's story together mm-hmm. changed drastically in some ways uh, from the original idea. I had on Twitter at one point, somebody was posting about different ways of handling trans characters in historic settings. Mm-hmm. And I asked if they would be willing to have me bounce some ideas off of them. And they were, and that was very gracious of them. And I tossed out some of the original ideas, you know, I described some of the original ideas I had and got solidly critiqued for several of the motifs I was using. Mm. And I went away and I thought about it and I realized that the things that they felt uncomfortable with were completely inessential to the essence of the story. The essence of the story was that Roz is putting her foot in it regularly and she needs to learn lessons and she needs to understand why her interactions around Tavit's relationship were inappropriate. And she doesn't understand that at first. All she knows is she did something really wrong and it hurt her. And later on, she figures out that, no, the important thing is it hurt other people. Yeah, and, her growth was really spectacular. In this. And, and that was something that, you know, as I say, you know, my, people who, who are not close friends of mine on Twitter, mm-hmm. just, just people who were passing acquaintances, but who knew me well enough to be willing to put that work in and trust that I would listen. Yeah, and, and I did, and I certainly hope that how I have handed, handled Tabit as a character will be a pleasure for people to mm-hmm. read, as opposed to merely neutral. I, you know, I, it's not my it's not my experience, so I can't speak to it. But I thought it was handled very well, and yeah, her growth, Roz's growth. From the clueless <laughs> little thing she is at the beginning to the end was really something. Well, if I if I had to sum up Roz's journey in a single sentence, it would be, girl, you need to learn that there are other ways of relating to people than fucking them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and and I want to make it clear that that like the previous books, uh, Flood Tide does not have on page sex. That's mm-hmm. just a a stylistic choice I made for the series, mm-hmm. but. You know, more than the other books, you are privy to the fact that she really wants to. <laughs> she really wants to, yeah. And I appreciate that about all the books, you know. I know how sex works, personally, and um, I don't really care to read detail. I mean, it, most of the time, I would say 85% of the romances I read, if there's a sex scene, I pretty much like, yeah, okay, got it. When are they done? Okay, good. I'll start reading again now, because I don't care. Well, well the, 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 the funny thing is that I decided to challenge myself, and I, I need I, I need to learn how to write sex scenes because the other part of it is, I mean, I'm asexual. I don't actually get desire in the same way that some people do. Mm-hmm. So so I'm working my imagination, and I am I am writing an Alpenia short story that does in fact involve on-page sex. In fact, it is kind of the central theme of this short story. And it is the story about how Antonia gets pregnant. Oh. So it involves Antonia and the baby's father and Jean uh-huh. all together. Yeah, interesting. And it's <laughs> like, okay, I threw myself in the deep end. Oh, wait, there wasn't a magic stone? Oh, there were plenty of magic <laughs> stones. No, 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 no. But, but no, there's also like a, a, a room in the, the Golden Falca Hotel in Heidelberg. <laughs> I don't know when I'm going to finish it I'm, uh-huh. I'm, because it's very much a, an experiment in learning how to write this. And I've got a, a good friend who has promised to, you know, beta read the hell out of it for me, who is much more comfortable with, with sex scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a, a color I want on my palette. Good. 
Do you have a favorite character? Oh, absolutely. Yeah? It's Antonia. Yeah. No, no questions asked. You know, I will freely admit that she shares... I identify more with her than with any of the other characters, although she is not me. Mm -hmm. But absolutely, you know, one of my security questions somewhere on a system that I won't tell you about is, you know, who is your favorite character? And, and there is no way I'm going to forget that answer. Uh -huh. <laughs> what books or and or authors would you say inspired you to write this series? There are two books that are the direct progenitors. One is Georgette Heyer's These Old Shades. Yeah. which may seem like an odd book. That's the one about, you know, the irascible, cranky old duke who falls in love with the teenager who was cross-dressing as a boy who turns out to be the lost heir. Oh my God, yeah. okay. Anyway, uh, so it, it, it was not like a direct inspiration for the plot, but it was in my mind when I first got the scenario of an older character who is responsible for a younger character and who then needs to leave that younger character in the hands of someone who will take care of her. Um, and it, you know, it doesn't map at all uh -huh. to, to these old shades, but, but there's that there's sort of structure and that sense of people being in other people's charge against their will. Mm. And to some extent, the, 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 uh, the Duke of Avon from these old shades, there's a little bit of him in uh, Baron Savitze at mm -hmm. the beginning, mm -hmm. although I, I figured out later that Baron Savitze is also the Count of Monte. Okay. <laughs> uh, so there was that, and m basically my entire love for uh, Hare's uh, Regency romances, uh -huh. and I wanted to write a Regency romance where the girls fall in love with each other. Nice. And it went different places than that. Mm -hmm. but, but These Old Shades is one of the reasons why originally a daughter mystery was going to be set in France. I see. Yeah. Because uh, there was a feel there that I, I was aiming for. Mm -hmm. um, and then everything went sideways and ended up in Fantasyland. Uh, but the other book that was a direct progenitor of Daughter of Mystery was Ellen Kushner's. I knew it. The Privilege of the Sword. Yep, yep. I knew it. Because that wonderful, darling, delicious book was not the book I needed it to be. It was the book it wanted to be, and it's wonderful, and it's perfect. I'm going to talk about it more in the book appreciation yes. segment. Yeah, I wondered. <laughs> I wondered, because as soon but, as I started reading Daughter, I was like, hey. But it wasn't the book that I desperately needed to have exist. Mm -hmm. And it was because it was so close that I said, Screw this, I just need to write it. Mm -hmm. Nobody else is going to write it for me. If somebody can come this close and not get there, I need to write it. Mm -hmm. And so that was where all the, you know, the swashbuckling and the cross-dressing and the, you know, the operas and the ball gowns yeah. and the Such fighting of duels and everything. You know, it, it, I, I, I pay my homage to, to Ellen Kushner. Yes. She is a wonderful person. Yeah. I mean, she's a wonderful person, even apart from the books that she yeah, writes. But yeah, but, but uh, for sure. I, I enjoyed that book very much when I read it many years ago. And I, like I said, I saw it instantly with Barbara that it was uh, very much like the character in that book. What made you choose a laundry maid as your main character in this book? Why a, la yeah, why a laundry maid? <laughs> Part of the reason I wrote Flood Tide is because I had started accumulating these teenagers 
and I wanted to do something teenage with them before they became adults. I uh-huh. wanted to do something that focused on a teenage crowd running around together, separate from what the adults were doing. Right. I thought about making Yulian, so mm-hmm. so Margaret's um, cousin Yulian, mm-hmm. um, into the main character. But the problem is that Yulian has she's she's got too much. She's she's too privileged. For, for all that she ran away from home to have adventures in the city, you know, she is really a very comfortable, privileged character. Yeah. And I was getting a little bit tired of having all of my viewpoint characters be characters who have at least comfort, if not privilege. I mean, you know, let's let's be honest. So Lucia, the the, the opera composer, she she worries about money, but she's got a home. She's got a family, right. you know. Um, Serafina you know, is angsty over the nature of her magical abilities and, and over being a woman of color in a society that is overwhelmingly white. But again, you know, she worries about money, but she's comfortable and she's got a network and all that. She's not, if she needs help, she has friends she can call on who will get her out of, she doesn't always think about it, but she does. And I wanted to write about a character who was the other side of being a queer person in history, who is at risk, who is vulnerable, who does not have money and privilege and titles and everything else to insulate her from what people think about her sex life. Right. So that was why, why Roz. And to some extent, the, the Laundry Maid was almost started as what is the most I don't want to say ridiculous, but what is the most peculiar occupation one could have for a fantasy heroine? Mm. And and uh, and that just it sort of came to me. I think I, I think I started saying it as a joke originally, but 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 then when I when I inserted her in a passing, you know, a, a passing role in uh, Mother of Souls, uh, she was all firmed up by then. It's like uh, by that time I had plotted Flood Tide entirely because uh-huh. the two books inter- intertwined so much. And I wanted a working class character. I wanted a character who was in service, who was entirely dependent on the goodwill of the servant's hierarchy and heaven help her if she came to the negative attention of her actual employers. And another big part of it was that she was a country girl. She came into the city to work and does not have a support system. She does not have relatives. And when she got thrown out on the street for being you know, caught having sex with another housemaid. She honestly has nowhere to go. The The first chapter, and this isn't a spoiler, so I'll, I'll say it, the first mm-hmm. chapter is pretty much about her contemplating becoming a beggar, contemplating uh, becoming a prostitute, contemplating starving and freezing on the streets, and just sort of bullying her way through until she gets a second chance. Yeah. And that then informs a lot of her motivations for the rest of the book. She is constantly thinking about if I step out of line, if I if I fall in love with the wrong person, if I make the wrong move, I'll be out on the street again and this time there won't be a second chance. Right. That brings me to another question as we're talking about the book, the lower, let's say lower class, mm-hmm. the less privileged people. We see a lot more of kind of the lower side, the other side of society in this book very effectively with Liv, the boat woman, and the whole thing with the fever. Yeah. And the separate, I mean, wow. Talk about, felt like present day <laughs> in a way where, I, I don't know, let's, maybe this is a spoiler, I don't know, but the whole... Um, the title of the book is Flood Tide. Flood, right, right. <laughs> and, then, and then, you know, one 
people can't leave. There's a, there's a fever, and the higher ups want to keep the fever in with the with the lower, so they don't let anybody travel from one side to the other. And there's it's like there's a border wall yeah. in a way, you know. Or and, like you know when you had the you know all the flooding from the hurricanes around Louisiana, and people were standing on bridges trying to keep the riffraff from crossing over to right. where they were. It was really powerful. Uh, you yeah. know, I. I think that human nature, even in, in its bad side as well as its good side, is fairly consistent. And so using imagery like that from the modern day to, to think about how people would react, I think is, is a reasonable thing to do. You know, I'll, I'll quite honestly confess that my image of seasonal flooding, you know, to some extent comes from the Sacramento Delta. Mm -hmm. um, it's that notion of you've got a snowpack in the mountains and it tends to all melt at one time. And then suddenly, you know, where you used to have fields, now you've got rivers. So not so much for the actual ecology of Alpenia, but for that, that sense, that gut level sense of what is it like to have this happen? You know, the other thing I used for imagining Roteneck in, in flood tide was lots of uh, newspaper pictures of flooding in European cities. Um, there's been a number of you know, really severe floods in the last 20 years or so. Uh, I got some really great pictures in my research file that, that I look at when I think about, so could you row a boat down what used to be a street? Why, yes, yes, you can. But the flooding and the disease and all that Part of that was inspired by what I've been saying, you know, first jokingly and then seriously, is that the series is going to continue until we get to the revolution. And to get a revolution, you need to push people so hard that they are willing to throw away even the little they've got. You know, I've been dropping bits and hints of how, you know, there is this divide of understanding of priorities between the upper classes who they're concerned with things like you know the toll one pays for a horse that dies in the middle of the toll gate uh, <laughs> i had fun making up that example whereas the the working class people are worried about things like uh, why haven't we dredged the canals recently what's going to happen when the flood comes next there's been this theme put to put into the book since the beginning that oh flood tide it's a holiday. You, you leave town and you have a party in the country with your friends and relatives uh, because, oh, it's just so, so nasty and stinking when the river, river floods. And that always carried with it the understanding that there are people who cannot leave. There are people who are just going to like wade through the water to work every day until the waters go down. And that struck me very early on as you know, a good catalyst for a revolution. Yeah. So if not an actual flood itself, then the memory of how your life was dismissed as unimportant. Yeah, that's definitely a great catalyst. I have, I have expected a revolution in this book, frankly. Oh, no, 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 because there will be <laughs> other factors that catalyze the revolution, but that's, that's for a future book. Another thing that I really enjoyed about, about all your books is, although it is a series, we can definitely say that it's a series, each book, is a standalone. Somebody could pick up Flood Tide and read it and have a great appreciation for what a terrific story is. What's fun though, as someone who has read the whole series, is watching Roz think that she's the only one <laughs> who's a lesbian. And uh -huh. she's got all these dark secret thoughts. But we know, as the reader, that, well, guess what, honey? Your boss is one. <laughs> and guess what? That other rich lady that comes, she's one too. And oh, you know what? It's, they're everywhere. 
Yeah. And so it, it's fun as the reader when you know that. But even if you don't know that, you enjoy it when she find, when she realizes mm-hmm. it too. So I very deliberately wrote Flood Tide as a standalone. And it's a practical reason. Get to book three in a seven book series and it becomes daunting for people. It's going to be rare for somebody to pick up book three, Mother of Souls, and read it as their first book. When they read Daughter of Mystery as their first book, there's going to be a fall off. You know, not everybody's going to read the second book and not everybody who reads the second book is going to read the third book. And I needed a, a way to give the series more of a shot in the arm. Mm-hmm. And I, I call it an in, independent freeway on-ramp. Yeah, do you think that, is it your hope that people will pick up Flood Tide as, a first, as their first yes, look? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I, think. I mean, I, I certainly hope that the people who've been reading the series all along will feel inclined to pick it up. But my big hope is that it will have the kind of reach and sales that Daughter Mystery did, and maybe even more because I'm better known now. Mm-hmm. So people who had not started the series because, oh my God, there's three books, that's, I, 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 I don't want to start a new long series. But they'll pick up Flood Tide because it's a standalone, because you don't need to have read anything else first, mm-hmm. and because you can read it and only it and be happy at the end. Mm-hmm. Did you find it more difficult to write first-person narrative? rather than omniscient? Not really. I flip-flop between them. There are ways in which each of them is easier. So like my, my short stories based on the Mabinogi, the Skin Singer stories right. are all first person. Right, 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 right. In terms of getting inside, I like being inside a character's head. I like the narrow point of view that you get from you know, either first person or a camera eye, mm-hmm. third person, because story is so often about what you conceal as much as what you reveal. Right. And I like concealing things from readers. I like concealing things from characters. One of the reasons I did the alternating viewpoints for the earlier books is because I want to show what each character does not know about the other character. And when I don't want to reveal something about a character, I want to show them from the other character's point of view. Mm -hmm. So in terms of story structure, third person, I'm I'm very fond of. And and I love, like I say, getting deep inside their point of view. And I I actually dislike omniscient in in the strict sense where you know I am the godlike author you know sitting above everything just right. describing everything as it goes by because it's so easy for that to fall flat mm-hmm. it's so easy for that to just be you know a recitation of facts yeah yeah and first person is sort of the ultimate camera's eye but then you don't have the ability to comment on things around you as much so when i'm doing third person i can describe my character interacting with things around her mm-hmm. without her having to necessarily take note of them. So, you know, she may be walking through the park that has the Roman ruins in it, and this gives world building for the background of Alpenia, but I don't have to have her notice, oh, there are the ruins over there on the other side of the park. Somebody told me that they were, you know, built in, in ancient Rome. Whereas with the first person point of view, if it's done well, you only ever know, not simply what that character knows, but what they think is worth thinking about. Mm, yeah. And there were a couple places where I had to really dodge around that to provide essential information. Uh, And I I blogged about that. And I talked about it where when I needed the reader to know more about the various goings on at the climax of the plot. 
So no spoilers, but mm -hmm. you know there are other characters. The, the stuff that you learn about in Mother of Souls that's going on. Mm -hmm. I needed the reader to be at least aware that things were happening. And those things that were happening are things that Roz not only doesn't know anything about, but doesn't care about. She wouldn't even understand yeah, half of it. They had no impact on her. So either. there was no way to present them through her point of view. But I can have Serafina show up. Serafina is totally embedded in that because she was one of the main characters of Mother of Souls. And she can explain them to Celeste, and we should talk about Celeste. Mm -hmm. She can explain them to Celeste because she's being something of a, a magical mentor to Celeste. And Celeste is interested in it. So now Roz is just there in the room while Serafina is telling Celeste about all this stuff going on. Now the reader knows. Right. But you have to come up with tricks like that. Otherwise, you have your character saying, it's like, I looked at myself in the mirror and I noticed my brilliant red hair, which is so you know, yeah, right, right, indicative right, right, of my right, personality. Right. It's like, and being first person then restricts you in that way. You have to figure out what are the essentials that your reader has to know and do you need a workaround to convey it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But Celeste, so, so we, we, we hadn't mentioned Celeste. We yeah. mentioned Liv, who, who rows a water taxi on the river. Right. Uh, but Celeste is the other dressmaker's apprentice. She's right. the daughter of the dressmaker that Roz is apprenticed to. Um, right. And she does have magical talents, and that brings many things together. Yeah, she's a great character. Her devotion to her mother and wanting to make sure that her mother's shop is a success and that her mother has a successor her devotion to her mother over her dream, I have to say, must have been her dream, to practice her mysteries and learn more about that was really something. Um, she was a great character. And I, I, she was really fun to, to read because I could just picture her being totally not wanting to have this young whatever come in and <clears throat> take attention away from, you know, from her mom and having to take the extra time to train her and everything um, but yeah she was a good she was a good character what made you come up with her well celeste first shows up right. in mothers of right. souls as a young girl that seraphina encounters and starts mentoring right i'm trying to remember when i first decided she existed because Dominique, her mother, the dressmaker, technically shows up in Daughter of Mystery, although she isn't named, mm -hmm. and then is a background character in The Mystic Marriage because she's, she's the dressmaker that Jean likes to patronize, um, and so we, we see her regularly there. And I, like I say, I forget when I realized, I, I always like to say realize rather than decide, uh -huh. when I realized that she had a daughter who was learning the trade and who was magically talented. When she talked into your head and said, hey, yo, I'm here, right? <laughs> but it, it really just clicked. Mm -hmm. it, it, it really clicked. And, and then she became one of these teenagers that I was collecting. That's so great. And I, I fell in love with her uh, because of her relationship with Serafina, because Serafina was so delighted to have someone that she could, well, that she could be more knowledgeable than, that she right. could interact with and teach when Serafina was feeling very untalented herself. Right. And of course, the other part of it uh, is that Celeste and, and uh, her mother are black. Right. Dominique is from, she, she, she was born a slave in the uh, West Indies uh, and then brought back to France and then fled Paris with, at that, because of the legal rules in France, she was no longer a slave at that point, but she was still associated with uh, the family that had enslaved her. And when they fled the, the revolution and ended up in Alpenia, 
Um, this is all deep backstory. It's that, great. That, you know. And then uh, Celeste's father is uh, an Alpenia, and he's white. Part of this came out of my commitment to having Alpenia be diverse mm-hmm. and not having it be this weird little Disneyland whitewashed white, white, yeah. society. Well, the reason I dedicated Mother of Souls to the woman who runs Medieval People of Color is because she helped me really delve into looking at the artwork and the records and say, seeing you know, how diverse ethnically um, early modern Europe was. That comes into it as well, that here is Serafina, you know, she, her parents were from Ethiopia, um, although she was born in Italy. And she lands in Rotenek and she is feeling so much of a, uh, you know, a ship adrift and giving her friends of color to interact with and to feel anchored by and to feel like, you know, she has something in common with them. And then especially when she bonds with Celeste over learning magic. It it was something I wanted to do for Seraphine. I wanted her to have a community, to have people. Yeah, and for Celeste to have a mentor of color yes, and to see that there are really opportunities for her outside of being just her, her mother's assistant or mm-hmm. being a dressmaker like her mom, to have her re- really realize that her dream of practicing magic and performing mysteries is achievable, is, is achievable yeah, yeah, because it's been done by someone like her. Mm-hmm. And I'm always layering in little details often without knowing what use I'm going to make of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Where later on when I'm plotting the next book, it's like, ah, I planted seeds that I'm going to harvest right now. (laughs) And and Dominique was one of those. In in Daughter Mystery, when uh, Margaret is arranging for proper clothing for for Barbara towards the end of the book, Mm -hmm. and the dressmaker who is commissioned at that point is Dominique, mm-hmm. although, as I say, I don't even mention her name. Mm-hmm. Or maybe, maybe I do. Maybe, maybe, maybe she's do. Madame Dominique. But there's no context for saying, you know, this is Madame Dominique, the dressmaker who came from Paris, who was born in the West Indies, blah, 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 blah. You don't know any of that, but I've, I've embedded it in the choice of name, in the choice of a French name, so that in the mystic marriage, when you encounter her again and you know that she is black, it, it fits in with yeah. what happened earlier. Yeah. And I do that with a lot of the details, especially of minor characters who I think might become important. I mm-hmm. give them backstories. I mm-hmm. give them you know, you character. You have binders and binders and binders of I have facts. a database. I, of course you do. Queen of databases. <laughs> And so do you have the name of the character and then little characteristics about them? Yeah, so I, I, have, I have the character's name, you know, it's like gender, social class, social connections, anything that I have specifically said about, like, you know, where they live or what they do. If they become important enough, I find a reference image. So I go online and I look at old paintings and things like that and pull up an image so that if I need to describe them, I will be consistent because mm-hmm. I'm not actually very good at visualizing characters. And, and also which books they appear in. And then if there's like a bit of text that says something about them, I will paste that in mm-hmm. uh, so that I can go back to it. A lot of it is just so that I can be consistent. Yeah. Also so that I can run reports and say, I've got too many characters whose names start with A. And, and I, love, I love databases. I mean, you know, databases are my favorite uh, computer game. So <laughs> it just yeah. seemed natural to do. Do you have a reference vision of what Dominique looks like? I don't have Dominique. I have, a, I have an image for Celeste, and it is uh, from a sort of a folk art painting 
from the West Indies of a, a young girl of a well-to-do family. Uh, so she's in a nice little white Regency era dress. Uh, but I haven't found the image that says, hi, I'm Dominique. I just, I've looked, I've done a lot of looking, and I haven't found it yet. So Flood Tide is coming out November 15th, yes. right? Uh, so it's coming out from Bella Books. So you, do you have outlines for the other three? Yes, they're in varying levels of detail. So mm-hmm. I have a, I already have a Scrivener file for the next book, which is Mistress of Shadows. That is the one where Barbara grows off to be uh, the Princess of Alpena's spy mistress in Paris while Ooh. they're hunting down the satanic conspirators who caused Ooh. the weather mystery. And the viewpoint characters for that one will be Barbara and Serafina, who goes with her as her magical eyes, and a new character who is named Zobaida Alame, who is from the Egyptian colony in France that came over after Napoleon's brief aborted uh, invasion of Egypt. And there was this group of partially uh, Egyptian uh, soldiers and their families, and also some of the um, aristocracy from Egypt that had thrown in their lot a little bit too solidly with Napoleon and had to flee. And I've got this wonderful book about the, the whole history of, of that, wow. that group of people. And when, when I found that book, I realized I knew who Zabida was going to be because I needed a character in France and I needed a character who is going to be a love interest for Serafina. <laughs> in case I whispered too so- softly for the microphone, that <laughs> was, I needed a character who's going to be a love interest for Serafina. <laughs> and... And is that going to be first person as well? Or no, not? that's going to go back to uh-huh. the, the multiple viewpoints. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's again, going to be the, the narrow, you know, the tight yeah. uh, third-person viewpoints. There's also probably going to be, I'm still working this out, there's, there's a side story involving Antoinette's Jewish apprentice, uh, Anna Monteritz. Oh, right that originally I was going to do as a separate story, and then I realized it's entirely too woven into what's going on in Mistress of Shadows. So originally I wanted all of the viewpoint characters to be in France. Mm. But when I realized that I needed Anna's story to be part of this, and it really kind of had to come through her, my current plan is that she will be the fourth viewpoint character, but she will be back in Alpenia. And that's going to be tricky to work out so that it, it really flows nicely mm. um, and doesn't feel like she's just an add-on, mm-hmm. and she's not. She's also going to be my first viewpoint character who's not queer. I know, I know there are people who want her to be, but she's not. Well, I loved, I loved in Flood Tide um, the teenagers mm-hmm. going off on their adventures. And... Yeah, originally I wanted Anna, Anna Monteritz, to be one of the, the teenager pack, but she's too, she's too old. She's too yeah. mature. Yeah. More, more than she's too mature rather than that she's too old. There wasn't a yeah, way a little more to fit her in yeah. and, and busy yeah. with her own work. So, so that's, that's uh, Mistress of Shadows. And as I say, it's thoroughly plotted out. I've got all the chapters set up in, in Scrivener. The book after that is Sisters in Spirit, which is going to get a bit more into the uh, royal domestic politics of Alpenia. And that is outlined. I know who the main characters are going to be. I know a lot of what's going to happen. But it's not, it's not so thoroughly outlined that I've got chapters or anything. Mm-hmm. And in that book, I'm going to step away from the tight viewpoints. Mm. Because in that book, I start needing to know more things that my 
central characters are not present for. Mm. And so that will be another shift in viewpoint and, and probably will continue on with the last book, which is Heirs of the Deluge, uh, or at least that's the current working title, which will be about the revolution. Excellent. I so admire the, the whole... When did you know that it was going to be seven books? You know, I probably could look back in my blog and figure it out because I, I've been blogging incessantly about my writing process. I'm a very mm-hmm. processed person. Mm-hmm. Um, I think by the second book, I, I knew it was going to be a series. And by the, by the time I was plotting out Mother of Souls, I had an idea of the shape of how it was going to end. Mm-hmm. I'm not exactly sure when, when in there I sort of separated out and identified this will be seven books and this is what's going to be in each of them because at some point I think I was thinking in terms of eight books mm. and then I realized I didn't have enough material to do that. Mm-hmm. So it's been evolving. One part of my writing process that I've got all these visual metaphors for, for writing and part of it was looking at a map with a magnifying glass so that you see very clearly a small area that you really focused on, but then everything else, the further out it gets, is fuzzier and fuzzier, and you can only see the vague outlines. And that's how the series has been, where the further ahead in the series it is, the less I knew about it and the less I wanted to know about it, because I didn't, I didn't want to nail things down mm-hmm. when I was still writing the earlier books. Yeah, that makes sense. So, you know, this idea that, you know, the next book I've got thoroughly outlined, the book after that I've got a pretty solid idea, and the book after that is just this nebulous, okay, that's when the revolution happens. And that's how I've worked all along. Mm-hmm. So the point at which I knew how many books, that had to wait until I'd gotten far enough in that that, that part of the vision was becoming clearer. Cool. Interesting. You know, I hear from a lot of writers that they start to write a book and they've created these characters and then the characters kind of start to talk to them and tell them (laughs) what they want to do and what they're going to do. Does that happen to you as well? I mean, I I wouldn't personify it in the sense of, you know, these characters are real people. Mm -hmm. But once you've developed a complex character, now they've got habits, now they've got ways of thinking, now there are consequences of what you've already set up. And I love... In the same way that I, I love you know layering in what seem to be irrelevant details, and then I realize you know I set something up that I didn't even know I was going to do. And in the same way with the characters, because of how I've developed them, there are consequences in how they are likely to behave, in what their failure points are, mm-hmm. what are their you know what are their fatal flaws. All of my characters have issues. I, I have gradually realized that Margaret Savitre is the ultimate nice white lady. She doesn't realize how privileged her life is. She wants to do good things for other people and often like steps on toes in the process. She needs to have some mind opening along the way and um, she's gonna get some of it eventually. But you know, she started out as being, oh, this is the sympathetic young character who you know is finally realizing her dreams. But the way in which she realized her dreams left her with some real blind spots. Yeah. You know, she really does think that if you throw money at something, you can solve problems, and, right. and you can't. Right. And I've been really explicit about Barbara's failure modes, where she is, 
She has control issues. She wants to know everything. She wants to be in control of things. She thinks she knows better than other people what they ought to be doing, and she will tell them so. Her very best friends occasionally tell her not to be quite so much of a bully. And what we see at the end of Mother of Souls, and will be a major element in the beginning of Mistress of Shadows, is that her self-image has been very tied up with her physical competence. And she's injured at the end of Mother of Souls in a way that drastically changes her physical abilities and she has not really confronted that by the end of that book and at the beginning of mistress of shadows it smacks her in the face mm. and she does not deal well with it and she hurts people in the process and she spends part of you know, part of her story in the book is coming to terms with who she is apart from her body there's also you know some other interesting things because Having been trained as a swordswoman, that's, you know, a stereotypically masculine profession. And she has played with being genderqueer. She has done the blurring the lines and she'll wear masculine style clothing or actually a full-on you know, men's outfit. Not only because it fits with the jobs that she does, but because she likes tweaking people. She likes being in people's face about it. Mm-hmm. And because her masculine side is very tied up with her prowess with the sword. When she loses that, she has something of a crisis of gender as well as a, hmm. you know, a crisis of confidence. Interesting. And she's going to confront that as well and figure out, you know, you know I, I, will, I will let out that Barbara discovers that, you know, she is decidedly masculine of center. She, she is not trans. She does not, you know, she, she is very comfortable with being female. But she needs to learn to embrace the fact that she likes masculine performance for its own sake and not simply as a social tool. Mm. And Tevitt's going to help her with that. Yeah, good. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. So you're hard at work at this seven book series. What other projects are you working on? I am dreaming of the day when I can write some ordinary historical novels. I, I have a Regency romance that I want to write. It's, it's got fun industrialist daughter and, and uh, some cross-dressing, but not the usual sort. And of course, a, a missing heir. You have to have a missing heir. I love missing heirs. I've got it fairly thoroughly plotted, but I'm, I'm worried that if I get distracted from writing the Elpinius series, I'll get bogged down and then mm-hmm. not finish that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I simultaneously, I really want to write my Regency romance and I want to put it off until I've got some free time. And the other project that's been eating up my brain lately, some people think the Alpenia book should have been like a linked series of romances where it's like each book focuses on a couple. Mm. And they're not. But I got this idea for a linked series of romances focusing serially on different couples Mm -hmm. set in the English Restoration. Mm. Because there are so many fascinating queer women in later 17th century England and France and I just want to, I want to like fictionalize them all and turn them into my characters mm-hmm. and then throw them into each other's arms. <laughs> and that one, I may actually have some non-female couples. Um, I may play around a lot more with you know, the gender of my, my, my characters. We'll see. But the idea is that it is like a linked series of women who all know each other and are part of sort of a, a group household so that I can have all the representation without really accumulating the viewpoints right, in the right, same right, way. Right, right. And uh, the, I've got a series title. It's called Diana's Band. Huh. Um, but, you know, again, it's like I, I don't want to plunge into that and then never get back to Alpenia. Right. And, uh, and other than that, I've got some short fiction that I've been writing um, that 
Any more Skin Singer stories? I have finished the Skin Singer series, but I have not yet published the last story. Ah. I wrote a novelette to, mm. to conclude it. And what I've been saying for years is I am going to do a self-published collection of the whole series, mm-hmm. including this never-before-seen novelette, and use it as my, my first dabbling in the field of self-publishing. Mm-hmm. And I, I often get paralyzed by things with steep learning curves. Mm. So the various skills I need to learn to put out a, an entirely self-published book for money, mm-hmm. as opposed to just free on my website, right. they keep being a stumbling block. So I keep saying, it's like, well, when I've got some elbow room, when I'm not in the middle of another project, and, and it, it's, I've been saying that for a couple of mm-hmm. years now. Yeah, so, so one of these years, it's, it's ready to go. It's all finished, it's been edited, it's just the- a question of you figuring out yes. how to do it. Now, the, so you said a Regency. Now, when you say Regency, is it gonna be queer Regency? Oh, yes, or, oh, oh, yes. yes. Oh, okay. absolutely. Okay, okay, okay. Just, <laughs> I really have no interest in writing straight romances. It just, the life's yeah. too short. Right. Talk about your blog a little bit. Maybe give your website, and, and where can people find you on social media? So my website is alpenia.com, just like the name of the country. Mm-hmm. And it's an excellent one-stop shop for my social media because you can find links to my Facebook and my Twitter there. My blog includes the Lesbian Historic Motif Project, which anyone who's listening to this podcast already knows about. <laughs> So I won't say any more about that. I also do book reviews. I talk about my writing process. I do teasers for my fiction. Occasionally I do long philosophical essays about things of deep interest to me. More people should read my blog. I'm a very fascinating writer. You would enjoy it. Well, I agree with that. (laughs) And I will say with regard to your reviews, I've found quite a few books, new authors from some of your reviews. So they're on my to be read pile. Well, Heather, thanks for sitting down with me to talk about your books. Well, thank you, Darlene, for inviting me on my podcast. (laughs) I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. See the show notes for links to people and topics. Most shows will have a transcript linked as well. If you have a book announcement, a topic suggestion, or might like to appear on the show, please drop me an email. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and consider supporting our Patreon 